Hey, Lisa Stampaninsky is currently a postdoctoral fellow. She'll be here only in the fall quarter, uh, and then she's going back to Cambridge, where I guess she's taking a position. In, is that right? That's Oxford. Oxford. I'm Oxford. Uh, her PhD is from the University of California, Berkeley, and 19, uh, 2008. Uh, she's working on her dissertation and, and turning it into a book. It's called Disciplining an Unruly Field, Terrorism Studies in the State, 1972 to 2001. Uh, she's discussing the organization of expert knowledge on terrorism from the 1970s to the present day and examining, first, the identification of terrorism as state problem, the role government has played in organizing the production of that knowledge, and then the ongoing efforts of academic and practical experts to define the field and work in it. Her most recent publication is How Does Culture Become Capital and Cultural Institutional Struggles Over the Character and Personality at Harvard. It doesn't sound like that's a hotbed of terrorism, but it's a completely different topic. <laughs> She's been a Jean Monnet Fellow at the Robert Schumann Center for Advanced Study at the European Institute in Fiesolet, and I'm very glad to have her here at Mershon. So without further ado, Lisa Stepaninsky. Okay, thanks uh, for the introduction, and thanks to Marshawn for hosting me here. Um, for my talk today, I'm going to be addressing the question of how terrorism first became a problem in the sense we know it today. This talk is drawn from a larger project which follows the development of terrorism and terrorism expertise from the 1970s to the present day, and I'm happy to discuss more about the project as a whole in the question period if people would like. Since the events of 9-11, terrorism has often been framed as either a timeless threat or an entirely new phenomenon. In this talk, I show that contrary to these assumptions, terrorism is a problem with a history, one that we can trace. And I argue that this history matters. It shapes how we think about terrorism, the questions we ask, and the possible remedies we can apply to it, as well as the questions that are not asked, those silences that may even go unobserved. The unknown unknowns, as one of our statesman philosophers once put it. Furthermore, the story of how terrorism became a problem also speaks to two more general processes of interest to social scientists. How problems become objects of knowledge and how social processes become subject to rationalization processes. In this talk, I'll trace the processes through which the problem of terrorism began to take on some of its current forms in the early 1970s and I emphasize the importance of new events, new experts, and the application of knowledge practices to these events. In addition, I begin to trace how and why terrorism became what I call such a difficult problem. What do I mean by this idea of a difficult problem? Um, for now, some of the essential aspects of this difficulty are things which will probably be familiar to anyone who's thought about terrorism or looked into the literature. The inability of settling upon a stable definition. Even experts who write about terrorism have been unable to agree upon a definition. The difficulty of finding a stable location from which to approach terrorism as a commentator. It's a very politically and morally charged subject, and it's difficult to find a neutral role from which to position oneself. And finally, the strongly intertwined roles of the problematics of rationality, morality, and politics within understandings of terrorism. Over the past three decades, Terrorism has become a shorthand for a peculiarly powerful yet unstable discourse, one through which we attempt to deal with a problem that is all too real, yet whose constructedness often hovers just within view, a seemingly irrational problem 
that experts have struggled to bring to the edge of rationalization, only to have it slip from their grasp. This talk thus describes how terrorism first emerged as a public problem and analyzes the processes through which it became an object of expert discourse and some of the ongoing difficulties that have faced terrorism expertise, past and present. Hostage incidents, and particularly airline hijackings, were to become the archetypal terrorist event of the 1970s. But neither hostage-taking nor hijacking was a new tactic. There were 79 hijackings worldwide between 1930 and 1967, yet these were generally not considered to be acts of terrorism. In fact, the U.S. generally treated hijackings as a routine domestic criminal matter as late as 1968. As one account of this period put it, these attacks were not generally or consistently called terrorism, nor were those who committed them generally or consistently called terrorists. They were bandits, rebels, guerrillas, or later urban guerrillas, revolutionaries, or insurgents. By the mid-1970s, however, bombings, hijackings, kidnappings, and hostage-takings had come to be understood as part of a new problem known as terrorism. Over the course of the 1970s, terrorism would come to be conceptualized as a new and distinct sort of problem, not simply a tactic, but an identifying activity melded to a new and distinct sort of actor, the terrorist. While this term, terrorism, had previously been used to describe incidents such as hijacking, there, these had not been clearly differentiated as a distinct sort of problem, nor were terrorists delineated as a particular sort of actor or role. Furthermore, while the ideas of terror and terrorism had previously been used to refer to actions both by and against the state, over the course of the 1970s, this term would come to be identified almost exclusively with violence against the state. And so does this transformation, both in meaning and the emergence of terrorism as a delineated, distinct problem that I aim to explain today. From the time of the French Revolution, when the term is considered to have first appeared, through the 1960s, these terms of terror and terrorism commonly referred to violence both by the state against the population and various forms of insurgent violence. In the literature coming from political and military spheres, the concept of terrorism was used relatively infrequently, and such uses tended to conflate terrorism with insurgency and guerrilla warfare. In the media, the term was used infrequently as well, and in a somewhat scattered fashion, referring to such diverse events as kidnappings for ransom, guerrilla warfare, and inner city violence. A survey of major newspaper and periodical indexes found that neither the New York Times nor the London Times Index included terrorism as a significant category in their index before 1972. Scholarly work on terrorism published in the 1960s was both relatively rare and generally referred to a much wider array of events than is common today, including within its scope both guerrilla warfare and violence perpetrated by the state. So how can we account for this emergence of terrorism as a new problem in the 1970s? Prior accounts have generally defaulted to one of two explanations. Either that the terrorism discourse straightforwardly reflects concrete changes in the sorts of violent incidents that were occurring, or that terrorism as a discourse is the creation of interested parties, uh, states and elite experts who reflect the interests of state elites. I argue, however, that 
the emergence of terrorism cannot be understood as simply a reflection of concrete events or as a mere rhetorical creation of interested parties. The events comprising this new category of terrorism were not purely novel, and this is demonstrated in a number of ways. One way is that if you look at um, literature and projects that were developed once the coin is solidified, experts began to retrospectively apply the term to earlier incidents, both in the near and far past. Nor can terrorism be understood, however, as a simple construction. Although the terrorism discourse co-emerged with a new arena of terrorism expertise, I would say it's more accurate to say that these were mutually constitutive. Furthermore, the question is not simply how terrorism became a problem or a concept, but how this concept of terrorism began to take on some of the characteristics which it retains to this day. A peculiarly powerful yet unstable characterization of a problem. A problem that is all too real, yet whose constructedness is always just within view. One that hovers on the edge of rationalization, yet continually eludes it. Neither the emergence of new techniques of political violence nor the rise of new terrorism experts can singly account for the new concept of terrorism or for its discursive and political power. If terrorism were simply a reflection of political interests, why has it so often seemed so concrete and persisted so powerfully? Yet alternatively, if the discourse on terrorism were simply a reflection of concrete events, why should not just counterterrorism policies, but the very way in which terrorism discourses are constructed, be such a site of continual con contention? I argue that to account for the emergence of the conceptualization of terrorism as we now know it, we must focus upon the intersection of a trifecta of events and processes, the emergence of new sorts of events, the emergence of new types of experts, and the application of specific forms of expertise to this emerging problem. So I'll begin by identifying the experts and the events who were the crucial agents in the emergence of this new problem. Um, I'll then discuss three modes of analysis through which experts tried to make terrorism knowable, understandable, studyable. And these are legal rationality, risk management and quantification, and crisis management and routinization. Each of these approaches sought to make terrorism knowable in a particular way, and each suggested a certain mode of management or governmentality. As the problem of terrorism took shape over the 1970s, however, it resisted capture by these rationalizing logics. And no one of these approaches was able to successfully capture or manage the terrorism problem. The late 1960s and early 1970s witnessed dramatic shifts in the application of political violence by non-state actors. I've noted that hijackings and hostage takings came to be seen as the archetypal terrorist act in the 1970s. What I didn't note is that whereas earlier airplane seizures had tended to play out in a relatively routinized way, with the hijackers either demanding payoffs of money or transportation to somewhere they wanted to go, as terrorism was reformulated as a political theatrical tactic in the late 1960s and early 1970s, the spectacle of the incident itself became a crucial part of its intent and effectiveness, for which the rise of a global televised mass media was a necessary precondition and making a global media event such as the Olympics an ideal locale. The events at the 1972 Munich Olympics 
have been inscribed in both popular and expert histories of the problem as the spectacular event that inaugurated the era of modern terrorism. On September 5th, 1972, eight members of the Palestinian nationalist Black September organization entered the dormitory of the Israeli athletes at the Munich Olympics, killing two and taking nine others hostage. They demanded the release of 236 Palestinians imprisoned in Israel, as well as several members of the Red Army faction imprisoned in Germany, and a guarantee of safe passage out, threatening to kill one hostage every two hours until their demands were met. All nine Israeli hostages, along with five of the Palestinians and a West German policeman, were ultimately killed in a battle following a failed rescue attempt. These events reverberated around the world in real time as the crisis was broadcast live by the global media that had been gathered for the Olympic Games and reviewed by an audience estimated at 900 million television viewers worldwide, thus attracting attention as had no previous acts of political violence on this scale. In the media, terrorism was among the terms used to describe the events, but the members of Black September were also denounced as criminals, madmen, and murderers. The New York Times wrote that yesterday's murderous assault in Munich plumbed new depths of criminality, while a September 7th editorial described the event as the depredations of such fanatical madmen. World leaders described the events as insane terror, an insane assault, an abhorrent crime, and the work of six minds who do not belong to humanity. In the U.S., President Nixon condemned outlaws who will stop at nothing to accomplish goals, while Democratic presidential nominee McGovern said that he was horrified, as I think all Americans are, by this senseless act of terrorism. Both houses of Congress passed resolutions proposing that the civilized world may cut off from contact with civilized mankind, any peoples, or any nation, giving sanctuary, support, sympathy, aid, or comfort to acts of murder and barbarism, such as those just witnessed at Munich. The U.S. Stock Exchange paused for a moment of silence in recognition of the events. Furthermore, the Olympic attacks spurred the U.S. government to take action in ways that earlier hijackings and hostage takings had not. And a significant part of the early response to this problem took the form of recruiting experts who could make terrorism into something which could be known and hopefully subsequently rationally acted upon the state played a key role in fostering the early growth of terrorism expertise, sponsoring and funding research, organizing conferences, and bringing experts and policymakers together. The first official U.S. government body charged with focusing on the terrorism problem was the Cabinet Committee to Combat Terrorism, established in pres- by President Nixon in late 1972, not long after the events at Munich. The CCCT's first goals were relatively limited focusing on improving security for specific populations for whom the U.S. government felt a particular responsibility, um, namely U.S. citizens at home and abroad and official guests such as diplomats within the U.S. The working group of the Cabinet Committee sponsored several conferences on terrorism and funded and organized a number of research projects. In 1976, the State Department reported that the Office of External Research was managing a quarter-million-dollar program of research and analysis on the subject with funds coming from multiple federal agencies, including the State Department and the Department of Justice. With these initiatives from the government, along with independent interest arising from academics and others, 
the production of terrorism expertise expanded exponentially in the 1970s. Within the space of a few years, terrorism was transformed from a topic with almost nothing written on it to a problem around which entire institutes, journals, and conferences were organized. Recalling the state of affairs in terrorism studies at the beginning of 1970s, one expert wrote that there were really no general experts in the analysis of terror, only those with special academic skills, such as a knowledge of the Palestinian Fedayeen or a career focused on deviant behavior that could be related to the problem. Those threatened by the terrorists, however, needed advice, recommendations, aid, and comfort. If the recommendations worked, no matter how bizarre, so much the better. Similarly, when asked about the earliest years of terrorism expertise, Walter LeCour recalled that in the beginning, there were maybe half a dozen people. This wasn't organized at all. So this is the very beginning, 1972-1973. By 1977, however, at least 11 bibliographic catalogs had been compiled to keep track of the ever-increasing number of publications. A survey of two of these bibliographies found that over 99% of the works cited were published in or after 1968. Furthermore, terrorism became a hot topic of discourse within both political and academic realms, with one observer writing a few years later that authors have spilled almost as much ink as the actors of terrorism have spilled blood. The rapid growth of this new field can be illustrated by looking at the expansion of conferences on terrorism, which were the primary forum for communication among experts and between experts and policymakers at this time. From 1972 to 1978, there was not only a significant growth in terrorism conferences, but also a growth of experts who specialized in terrorism and a growth of interconnections among these individuals. And as part of my study, I used network analysis to illustrate the growth of these connections among presenters of, at terrorism conferences, giving evidence of terrorism expertise as an emerging site of social, social connections. Um, I'm going to show you some diagrams which illustrate this. And... Basically what's going on here, um, the conferences and individual presenters at conferences are the points. And the red circles each represent one conference. The black squares each represent one presenter at each conference. And so each time you had a person presenting at a conference, you get a tie, which is the line. Um, and so in the language of network analysis, this is... Uh, two-mode representation. I can talk more about my methods if you're interested. Um, basically, um, I collected the data for this. Largely, it came from collecting reports from terrorism conferences. Um, I constructed a database that has about 2,000 individual presenters in it. There are 150 conferences from 1972 to 2001. I'm just going to talk about the first several years today, though. Okay, this is the first... Um, the first two years. And this is not a very interesting diagram because you don't have any connections. You have three conferences here, and there were no connections among the presenters who presented at the conferences. So basically, this is just showing you there's not much going on the first couple of years. No one who presented at this conference number two in the bottom corner also presented at the other conferences. So you can't say that people are communicating or forming networks necessarily. Okay, this is, and these diagrams are all cumulative. So this shows all of the conferences from 1972 through 1975. And this is just to indicate that at this point, you started to have the beginning of some ties. 
Um, so, for example, um, number 56 here, this guy in the corner, that's J. Boyer Bell, who I quoted earlier, and he was at two conferences and thus constitutes a link between those two. Okay, now it starts to get a little bit more interesting. This is a diagram showing all of the conferences between 1972 and 1976. Um, I've taken out of this picture the people, which are the black squares, who were only at one conference because otherwise it would just look too messy. Um, and you can see here, however, that there starts to be sort of a web structure. Furthermore, you can see that there are only a couple of individual conferences that are not linked into the network. So you start to have a network forming and social relations among people. This is the diagram showing all the conferences from 1972 to 1978. And just to get the idea here that you're now having a highly complex pattern of overlapping connections among events and presenters. Um, so by this point, between 1972 and 1978, what you see here is there were 29 conferences, um, 436 individual presenters, not all of whom are shown here. Um, but among the people who were attending multiple conferences, you see a density of interconnections. Um, consequently, these diagrams illustrate the growth of terrorism studies as not simply an isolated set of projects and individuals, but as a networked social arena. They illustrate the extent to which various groups of experts began to self-organize, building networks, and creating institutional frameworks for a new field. These institutional entrepreneurs aim to develop social ties among researchers and among organized projects. These projects provided both methods of communication among the experts and modes of legitimation for their work, aimed at establishing the importance of the project and of their expertise. By the late 1970s, a self-aware group of terrorism scholars had emerged, sometimes informally calling themselves a terrorism mafia. As Brian Jenkins, head of the terrorism research unit at RAND, would write in 1979, there's a kind of informal international network of scholars and government officials with interests or responsibilities in the area of terrorism. A kind of college without campus has emerged. So now we have events, new sorts of events that are seen as something like terrorism. New experts who are terrorism experts. Now I'm going to talk about how it comes together. How did these new experts take on this problem? What sorts of knowledge techniques did they apply? And how did they try and make this crazy problem of terrorism into something that could be rationally understood? So in the next section, I'm going to delve into the processes through which experts sought to make terrorism knowable or subject to expertise. And this is of interest not only because it enables us to understand the historical formation of this problem of terrorism, but also insofar as this can be seen as an example of two more widespread processes that are of interest to social scientists. First, the question of how scientific objects are constructed, and second, how social processes become subject to rationalization. Furthermore, this case of terrorism is a particularly interesting example of both of these processes because it has been perhaps more so than most problems subject to these processes, a seemingly unruly or undefinable topic. How is it possible to discipline or rationalize such a seemingly irrational problem? 
I'm going to focus on three techniques of knowledge that were predominant in the earliest years of terrorism expertise and through which experts sought to make terrorism knowable in the early 1970s. The first of these, legal rationality, approached terrorism at the level of the international system as a problem to be dealt with through legal and diplomatic means. A second method, routinization or crisis management, approached terrorism at the level of the incident and focused upon operational or event management responses. A third approach, quantification, sought to rationalize terrorism and make it subject to techniques of risk management, largely through the creation of terrorism event databases. Each of these three approaches sought to fit terrorism into an existing framework of rationalizing social problems. Each of these also implied a different understanding of terrorism as a problem and enabled a different mode of governmentality or set of practices through which terrorism might be managed. So first, I'm going to discuss briefly attempts to make terrorism into a legal or diplomatic problem. And by this, I mean attempts to fit terrorism into the realm of international law and diplomacy to govern terrorism um, through conventions, through international law agreements among states. Um, the impetus for this legal diplomatic approach came both from states and international organizations such as the UN um, who in these early years saw law and diplomacy as the key venue through which this problem could be dealt with and also from lawyers and legal organizations themselves who began to concentrate on terrorism as a problem that could be governed through their realm of law. The early U.S. response to government to terrorism, which was led largely by the State Department, thus envisions diplomacy and international law as one of the primary modes for governing terrorism. Within this framework, terrorists were largely understood as lawless individuals or law-breaking groups who could nonetheless be corralled and controlled within an existing framework of international laws and treaty agreements among states. Um, so knowledge practices that would be aligned with this approach would be things along the lines of figuring out how do these terrorist events fit into existing patterns of international law? How can we conceptualize what terrorism is? What sorts of laws might be approached to it? What sorts of international agreements might we set up that can deal with the problem? Um, concretely, states sought to develop international agreements for things like extradition policies and agreements among procedures for dealing with hijackings and laws for harboring terrorists. And this was a large emphasis at this time. Um, a number of the early conferences of terrorism experts also approached terrorism as a problem to be dealt with through legal or diplomatic means. And if you look at the list of presenters at terrorism conferences, lawyers were a large proportion of those presenting on terrorism at conferences in the 1970s. Just to flesh out a little more, I'll describe what happened at one of these conferences. And this was a conference held in 1978, um, and it was sponsored by the U.S. State Department, the Department of Justice, and the American Society of International Law. And according to their report, their goal was that they wanted to develop a plan to use international law to prevent terrorism and to further U.S. interests in regard to terrorism. The main areas of discussion were the apprehension and prosecution of international terrorists, practical problems of law enforcement, state responsibility, state help, self-help, and problems of international law, technological vulnerabilities, personnel and property of transnational business operations, and international initiatives. 
However, as I'll discuss a little bit more in the conclusion, while this legal framework was prevalent in the earliest years of terrorism expertise, the framework would encounter a number of difficulties, and terrorism could not be successfully treated as simply a legal or diplomatic problem. And in fact, by the mid-80s and beyond, few conferences on terrorism or other arenas of terrorism expertise would be taking the legal approach, and lawyers were a declining proportion of those acting as experts. What were some of the other methods for dealing with terrorism and understanding it? I'm going to talk next about terrorism as a series of crises that might be managed through routinization, the development of routine procedures. The second method of making terrorism knowable focused upon developing practical strategies for managing and responding to terrorist events, particularly people had in mind at this time hijackings, kidnappings, hostage situations. And by thinking through the possibilities in advance and developing planned routine responses for various potentialities, experts sought to tame the frightening and seemingly unpredictable terrorist event. The impetus for this approach, as with the legal rational approach, came both from the government and from experts themselves. Whereas the legal approach sought to manage terrorism at the level of the international world system through international legal treaties and regulations, this operational approach focused upon managing terrorism at the level of the incident through the development of routine procedures for responding to terrorist events. A key technique in the development of this form of knowledge was the simulation, games in which experts, policymakers, and first responders took the parts of various actors in a terrorist drama with the aim of testing potential sets of responses and then establishing and practicing routines for dealing with such events. One of the key proponents of this method was Robert Cooperman, a PhD in mathematics who had previously worked for the Office of Emergency Preparedness and the Institute for Defense Analyses, a military think tank. He was a member of the Cabinet Committee to Combat Terrorism and was active in organizing a number of conferences and was the driving force behind a number of efforts to make use of such simulations and games for crisis preparation and training. Cooperman was especially concerned about the need to prepare for future possibilities and how we might respond to ca catastrophic events. Thus, in a warning, he wrote in 1977 that Western nations, even the United States, are ill-prepared to cope with any form of warfare other than conventional military response. A clever terrorist who understands the potential failure modes of government can inflict, of modes of government can inflict grievous harm, possibly more harm than war. Unless governments take basic precautions, we will continue to stand at the edge of an awful abyss. And he saw developing routines for dealing with crises as one of these precautions. What happened with the use of simulation? This is a technique that preceded its use in terrorism, and it's a technique that's continued to this day. Um, you know, if you followed the emergence of the Department of Homeland Security after 9-11, they were using simulations. Um, simulations are used in many aspects of dealing with crises, natural disasters, flu pandemics. Many, many different sorts of problems are subject to this. And so routinization and simulation are techniques that have persisted to this day, but they haven't captured or fully managed to solve this terrorism problem. Um, and we'll discuss this a little bit more in the conclusion. Um, 
this didn't come out very well, but I don't know if this is just a lighthearted thing. Um, there was released a couple of weeks ago that some folks at the University of Florida came out with a sort of spoof of simulations um, for dealing with zombie attacks. And so basically it was just to show that this is something that's become so widespread. You know, they, they put together this handout, zombie attack, disaster preparedness simulation exercise, as if they were going to do simulations for dealing with this zombie attack. It can be applied to anything. Okay, finally, I'm going to talk about the method of quantification and development of databases. Some of the largest projects in the early years of terrorism expertise were efforts to quantify terrorism. Um, and these consisted at this time largely of efforts to construct chronologies of terrorist events and then event databases, which could be used to run statistical analyses. Um, a number of databases were developed, one, the largest at RAND, also at the Historical Evaluation and Research Organization, at the CIA, and a number of other locations. The overt purpose of these databases was to guide policymakers and practitioners in making decisions. Um, first, it was understood that databases could be used to track potential responses to terrorist incidents and suggest which might be most fruitful, thus informing things like the development of routines that I just discussed. They could keep track of what did we do in this earlier hijacking? Did it work? Yes or no? Second, it was hoped that the development of such databases might be helpful in using them to solve cases of terrorism where the perpetrators were unknown, so to develop profiling, perhaps. Is this the sort of event that the you know, Red Army faction might have done. Finally, databases were also used by private security and risk consulting firms to advise clients, governments, and international corporations as to the risk of terrorism in different areas of the world so that these individuals and organizations could try and rationalize their potential exposure to terrorism. Organizing events into databases opened up the possibility of explaining, and most centrally, the potential of even predicting where terrorism might occur in the future. Furthermore, the construction of terrorist event databases served to illustrate the extent of the terrorism problem, indicating its importance, and served to try to make terrorism into something subject to rational analysis. And this is something that is not obvious because terrorism was often seen as inherently irrational. And the very question of whether terrorism could be studied according to rational methods would become an ongoing axis of contention in terrorism studies. So to illustrate the idea that the databases not just were to understand terrorism, but to illustrate the scope of the problem and the ability to rationalize it, I have two quotes. Um, I spoke to Bruce Hoffman, who is formerly at RAND, currently at Georgetown University, and he made this point explicitly, telling me that the idea of databases was to give it rigor and an empirical foundation that it lacked, moving away from the anecdotal. Um, another expert who developed databases, Edward Michaelis, who is the originator of the Iterate database, which is also another of the earliest databases and one that persists to this day, he wrote um, in an introduction to this project, the study's central thesis is that international terrorist behavior forms discernible patterns. Discovery of these patterns through even the simplest of statistical procedures can be helpful in combating terrorism. The popular myth of terrorist randomness and irrationality confuses terrorist tactics to influence per public perception with their predictability. And he continued, unfortunately, while this menace has generated a cottage industry of writers, self-appointed security experts, 
apologists, symposium organizers, and novelists, the literature in the field has been unsystematic, non-cumulative, and distressingly unhelpful to the policymaker as well as to the general public. The study of terrorism has been marked by unsupported generalizations based upon lack of hard data. Um, and thus, he developed the database in order to try and uh, confront that. As, as others have argued, quantification can be seen as a means of standardizing entities which have an unruly presence in the world and of making them subject to not just scientific analysis, but also rational governance. This enthusiasm for database construction in the early years of terrorism expertise can thus be understood not only as an attempt to make sense of terrorism, but also an attempt to communicate the importance of terrorism as an object of knowledge, and indeed the plausibility of rational analysis of terrorism. The application of database, databases and quantification has persisted to this day as well, um, but as I'll discuss a little bit further in the next session, um, people who try and rationalize terrorism in this way have continued to face the sorts of difficulties that Nicholas described in his justification of his project. People argue that it's not rational. People make all sorts of claims. There isn't consistent data collection and so on and so forth. Okay, so I've discussed some events that spurred the identification of the terrorism problem. I've discussed the emergence of new sorts of terrorism experts. And I've discussed some of the practices of knowledge which people started to apply to these events to try and make them into something rationally understandable. Um, there's a long story of what happens after this, but to wrap up a little bit for today, um, I want to try and talk about what happened with these approaches and why do I say that terrorism was a difficult object and that none of these approaches were able to successfully fully enroll terrorism into their mode of knowledge and understanding. Um, okay, first, law and the legal approach. Um, as I've noted, lawyers were a significant component of those writing about, consulting with the government, presenting at conferences on terrorism in the 1970s, in the first decade of terrorism expertise. Yet by the 1980s and beyond, the legal approach seems to disappear. Reading the literature, looking at conferences, it, it's gone. Um, what happened? Um, the most straightforward explanation is that while the U.S. at first saw law and diplomacy as fruitful avenues for counterterrorism. Um, over time, it came to be seen as less useful um, to the point where under the most recent Bush administration, counterterrorism came to be seen as something that was almost explicitly extra-legal, something that dealing with the problem meant you had to seek to avoid the constraints of international law. And how did this happen? Um, there are a number of things one could point to, but clearly, I think the clearest is that law was unable to contain or manage the difficulty, the undefinability of terrorism. While legal scholars tried to fit terrorism into their paradigms, in order to enact legal rationality as a practical mode of counterterrorism, you needed to have agreement among the states who were going to sign on to these agreements. And if you read the history of these attempts at developing international agreements, it's a story of disagreement over what terrorism is, what counts as terrorism, who should we include as terrorists, who should we not, 
and there was no ability to agree on these and thus settle on any sort of legal um, techniques for managing it. Furthermore, it's not just among states that there was this disagreement. Even if you look at individual states over time, they are changing in what they consider terrorism. So this made the legal approach something that had a lot of difficulty being implemented. Okay, what happened with the routinization approach, development of crisis management, simulations? This is something that persisted, as I've noted. This technique has not only persisted in dealing with terrorist events, it's persisted in dealing with many other sorts of disasters as well. Um, but routinization has taken on a limited sphere. It deals with crisis management, terrorism on the ground. But routinization hasn't become a dominant framework for dealing with or understanding the terrorism problem as a whole. It can deal with emergency response. What do we do once an incident has happened? However, while simulations and routinization proved to be useful techniques for thus responding to terrorist events once they happened, over time, there grew demands for reactive and preventive approaches to terrorism. Routinization could aid first responders in doing their jobs better, but it could not fulfill a larger discourse about what terrorism was or how we should respond to it proactively. Finally, what happened with quantification? The goal of calculability has also persisted, um, but it's been a site of conflict. I've noted that in the legal framework, there was a problem of definition in that you had to have agreement among the states. This problem of definition also comes up in quantification in that there are a number of different databases and quantitative projects out there. And there's a difficulty because most of them don't have commensurable definitions. So there's difficulty in talking and sharing data and translating and so on and so forth. Um, this doesn't, however, prevent any individual project from going forward. So it's a somewhat different difficulty. Um, What are some overall conclusions from this big, sprawling uh, discussion I've given you today? Well, first, I've established that terrorism is an historically specific concept. It's not something that we can say has existed for all time. We can trace it to a particular point when people first began to conceptualize what terrorism was in the way that we think about it now. I've presented a framework for how this concept came together, suggesting that events, the state, and new experts and new projects and forms of knowledge came together to create this new notion of terrorism, which therefore has to be understood not just as a social construction, but as the outcome of concrete events and relationships. Finally, I've discussed three modes of knowledge and governance that were significant possibilities for dealing with terrorism in the early arena of expertise. No one of these single approaches was able to successfully capture the management of the terrorism problem or of its analysis. Each of these approaches represented an attempt to format terrorism as a problem which could be understood and managed via pre-existing form of rational analysis. However, particularly as the problem of terrorism took shape over the course of the 1970s, it took on the form of a problem which resisted capture by such logics. Rather, it remained and has remained an unruly problem. And this has implications persisting to this day. Anyone attempting to insert themselves into the terrorism discourse as an expert or otherwise must deal with this juggernaut of competing definitions of terrorism 
and the question of whether terrorism can be studied rationally at all, or is it an essentially irrational problem. Therefore, while it came to be solidified as something we can think about, we don't exactly know how to think about it. Thank you. Should I take the questions? Yes. I'm wondering if you've studied the literature on wicked problems. You know, that's something I'm just starting to look into, so I don't have an answer for that, but um, if you have thoughts, I'd be interested in hearing well, them. I think your last bullet there on your conclusions, it remains a difficult problem in quotation marks. Yeah. Uh, I would contend it's a, a wicked problem. Yeah, yeah. A wicked problem, whereas it's a complex interaction between the terrorists and the, and the responders and the analysts and whatnot. And I think that will really help you going forward uh, with your studies. That's helpful. Thank you. Okay. Have you come to any policy implications research? Um, I would say no. I mean, I don't have direct specific policy implications. I would say that we need to be cautious about thinking about terrorism um, and to be aware that when, when policies are put forward, um, we should think about what are the assumptions in play there, what is the historical context, um, what are the assumptions about what terrorism is and what can, we can do about it and how might there be different ways to think about it. So that's a very general sort of answer. But Yeah. Yeah, no, that, I, I would say that's absolutely the case. And um, I didn't talk about that here. I discussed that elsewhere. But one of the transformations that occurred as terrorism became a concept in the 1970s is that this notion of ter state terrorism really dropped out. It persists as a sort of a ghost or an oppositional discourse. So people are continually bringing it up and trying to challenge whatever definition of terrorism is in play at the moment, but with I would say within all of these frameworks, the legal, um, the routinization framework, and the quantification framework, the dominant definition of terrorism that was used was always one that was focusing on insurgent terrorism. Um, this isn't to say that you couldn't find examples, particularly in the legal field and among people who are doing quantitative work, of people who try and come up with a framework that includes state terrorism. Um, this is part of what I'm talking about as contention. You come up, there's sort of a hegemony where terrorism is seen as not including state terrorism, but yet it's a continual question that never goes away. Yes? Thank you. 
I haven't looked at that uh, myself, but I would say that one point I would make on that uh, note is that as this notion of terrorism solidified over the course of the 1970s, as it came to be seen as something that only insurgents do, it came to be seen as something that is necessarily bad and evil and perhaps irrational, there was a move away from those who would be labeled terrorists as calling themselves terrorists, if that makes sense. So earlier, if you look at earlier um, groups that now might be called terrorists, uh, like you know the, the anarchists in the early 20th century or the um, pre-state fighters in pre-state Israel, they would sometimes take on this label of terrorism for themselves. They would call themselves guerrillas or sometimes they would call themselves terrorists. Whereas once the idea of terrorism, as I'm calling it, as we now know it, started to solidify in the 1970s, it became very unusual for those who were labeled terrorists to themselves call themselves terrorists. And this feeds in again to this notion of terrorism as a difficult, unruly problem. Yes? Uh, would you talk a little bit more about, when you talk about solidifying in the 70s, but your data indicated there are 436 people, period, who went to a conference on terrorism, and something like 80% only went to one. Um, and that's over five years, six, six year period. <laughs> yes, that's uh, that's a really good question. And solidification. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's that time. Um, solidification is is perhaps the wrong word. Um, I guess I would make two distinctions here. I would argue I I'm talking on the one hand about a change before 1972 or so and after 1972. And so whereas before 1972, there really is no idea of terrorism as something that we can even talk about in a way that would be important or distinct from other modes of political violence. Whereas after early to mid-1970s, terrorism becomes something that people want to talk about. Um, I don't think, I, sh I didn't show it today, but... Um, have a graph of publications on terrorism and it basically it starts you know if this is like 1968 you have like one or two per year and then it shoots up in 1973 um, it becomes something now what this something is though is right it's not really solid it's it's an unstable thing it's not defined and the field as you might call it is not really a field um, this is it's a weird sort of field for people who are, if, you know, as, as I originally came to this project, I was actually coming at it thinking that this was going to be a study of something that would look like, you know, thing, other things that sociologists have studied, like professions and scientific fields and things like that, which are generally considered to have a structure, they have boundaries, you know who's in the field, who's out, who is an expert, who isn't. Um, and very quickly it became apparent that the field of terrorism studies isn't really a field in that sense. Um, it's a weird thing, and that's the interesting thing about it. So I'd say it solidified into something in the 1970s, but not into something solid. 
and perhaps I need a better word for, for what was going on there. But, um, yeah. I think it's clear that without without the media, um, things wouldn't have developed the way they did. Um, one of the causes, I think, of terrorism blowing up at this time is the fact that you had this worldwide media who could take an event that happens in Munich and broadcast it to everyone worldwide. So I'd say certainly the, the actions of the media are a precondition. Um, I don't know if I want to judge whether the media or the government was first or more important, but it's, it's definitely crucial. Yeah. When I think of the 70s, I think in particular about the PLO mm -hmm. and the IRA. And in each case, the political goal of the movement was clear. And in each case, the desire to kill civilians to make a case was clear. But what I don't think you had until the early 1980s was the explosion of suicide bombing. People in the IRA and the Yeah, definitely. So suicide bombings, the emergence of that is a real shift. And I would say tied to that, perhaps, is the emergence of terrorism that was seen as more irrational, perhaps. Um, in the 1990s, you had this idea of the new terrorism emerge, the idea that terrorists might not be so rational, right, as you described the PLO and the IRA as having concrete political goals and clearly trying to make a statement. And in the 1990s, there started to be more and more events that couldn't be understood in that way. They, it seemed like terrorists were becoming more violent. Um, their goals were not necessarily so understandable. So on the one hand, you have clear shifts in the sorts of events that were happening. On the other hand, I want to turn this around a little bit because on the one hand, while there's a literature, there is a literature that says that, well, in the 1970s, um, you know, terrorists were rational and they had clear political goals and their um, their tactics were limited, whereas in the 1990s and 2000s and today, they're completely irrational and they don't have clear goals and they're something completely different. I would also want to point out that if you go back and read the terrorism literature from the 1970s, this very question of irrationality, of whether terrorists have understandable political goals, was something that was highly in contention. You had experts arguing that it was, and you had many people arguing, especially in the political sphere, that terrorists did not have political goals. So this is one of the structuring features of the field, I would suggest. If I could just add to that, Chris, one way you gauge that is, is the indigenous audience. So the IRA Suicide bombing 
Yes. Yes. There's that whole issue of community support. You know, Timothy McVeigh never had any community support, whatever community he represented. But suicide bombers against Israel have. Absolutely. Um, I'm glad you brought that up because this um, point of, I want to highlight that this notion of irrationality, I'm not myself claiming that terrorists are irrational, and that's the truth. Um, what I'm claiming is that there's been a very strong discourse claiming that terrorists are irrational, which has persisted throughout discussions of terrorism from the 1970s through 2001, and that experts and others who try and understand terrorism rationally always have to contend with this competing framework that, which is claiming that terrorism is necessarily irrational and that terrorists themselves are irrational and that you have these two claims going on at once and sort of fighting with each other. That's, at the, that's what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, in the back. I guess I'm wondering what would count as successful capture of the That's a good question, um, because I don't have a really good answer for it. Um, I would say perhaps that success is not a point, but it's, um, it's sort of an asymptote or an ideal point, you know, an ideal, ideal type, and that you could perhaps imagine that different knowledge frameworks and different uh, modes of management might be seen to be more or less successful in capturing a, frame, a problem framework, um, and I'm, let me try and think of an example of uh, you know a framework that would be okay. So, for example, um, if you think about framework of um, mental illness, right? If you read in the history of mental illness, there were ships where, in the past, it was seen as uh, you know demons or madness or evil, and then the medical approach took over and. You could say that the medical approach to medical illness has been pretty successful in capturing that problem. Whereas I would say that none of the approaches to understanding and making sense of terrorism have approached that level of success. So it's a relative measure. Yeah. I'm thinking more at the epistemic level, although obviously what goes on at the epistemic level influences the policies that are enacted. Um, yes. 
um, you know, I've, I've focused on experts because it's a, I would say, a sort of focused arena where you can trace struggles over ideas. Um, and also a number of ideas and frameworks originate from this arena. But clearly it's very important to look at the, uh, you know, mass media and society and sort of how ideas are flowing in the larger world. Yes? Uh, I, it's hard to imagine, but uh, do you think it's conceivable at least some of the uh, terrorism experts have a tendency to try to hype the threat? So <laughs> I think that's been written about. Um, yes, it's, it's certainly conceivable. I mean, I, I don't think that explains everything that's going on here, but that's so certainly... Yes. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, reading through the literature and, and what went on, clearly that was the case more so for some people than others. Um, you know, Robert Cooperman was extremely, I call him a problem entrepreneur, he was extremely exercised about this and sort of made it his life's work to make people think about terrorism. There are a number of others who took on as their goal, um, if you read conference statements, for example, some of these conferences will state their goals in purely academic ways. We want to analyze and understand what causes terrorism, what causes terrorism to end, et cetera. Others will present their goals in more bombastic ways. Our goal is to alert people to the problem of terrorism. And then you have things in between. So certainly that's an important part of what's going on. Yes? Yes. So in that sense, it's become a nice propaganda term that all states use now. Uh, but it seems to have originated, as you mentioned, it, with the United States deciding to you know, label people who oppose it as terrorists and as extra legal. And I'm wondering how much of this is just an American appeal, it's even a feel, uh, whether other countries, as they deal with these problems, whatever they are, have constructed terrorism fields, whether they That's a really good question. Um, and one of the things I've thought about doing as a follow-up project is looking comparatively at the development of fields in different countries. Um, I would, I've focused on the U.S. in my research and in my talk today, but I would not necessarily say that it's the U.S. with England and Israel as satellites. I would almost... Not the driver. I would say those are three independent sites of the development of expertise, which have been internetworked, um, you know, through connections at institutes and conferences, and so on and so forth, with lesser participation from other parts of the world. Um, the question of then how things developed elsewhere, especially outside those three countries, I think is a good one. Um, it's 
been less, right, less prominent, obviously. Um, and I don't have an answer per se. Yeah, that has that has occurred. Yeah, and I mean the in my data collection, I limited myself to conferences that were in the U.S. or that had significant U.S. participation. Quite so, I can't really speak to things that were happening, say, just within Russia. But there were definitely conferences that were organized. Some of them, I think, were actually even organized from the U.S. Um, to reach out to to Russia and develop joint um, procedures for dealing with terrorism and to other countries. This sort of thing was definitely going on. Be a Yeah, that's very interesting. Of, of, as, as Rick said, the way terrorism is just constructed as something negative, and civilized people have a presumably a common interest in putting down terrorists, right. which is a great way to rationalize Japan's aggressive behavior. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Thank you. Right. I mean, clearly, the sort of uh, terrorists that the U.S. is interested in influences and drives a lot of research um, and the questions that people ask. Um, was there another part to your question about Islam specifically? Well, how much do you see expertise in terrorism coming to a point, or at least compartmentalizing? Oh, compartmentalizing. Um, 
I don't know if I would see it compartmentalizing. I think certainly there are lots of new experts who've entered the field more recently who are specialists in, you know, terrorism as an Islamic thing or Islamo-fascism or something like that. Um, where if you look at the people who were working on terrorism and the discourse um, sort of before 9-11 that's persisted since then, I wouldn't say there's a compartmentalization. There's perhaps a divide between people who see, um, you know, Islam as a specific type of terrorism and people who would fold that into studies of terrorism more generally. Um, one more question? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I don't know. I mean, you know, you could make an argument that, oh, you know, people are writing about this and they come up with this and that encouraged terrorists, but I don't. That doesn't seem very likely to me. Um, so I don't know. That's a good question. Do you have? Yeah. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. No. Clearly, you know, attention being paid to it is, uh, you know, clearly a crucial um, factor in its continuation. But I think the sort of attention that's paid to it, what effect does that have? I don't know. I want to, uh, everybody, I want to remind you that Lisa will be here for another several months. So there's a lot of opportunity to have uh, conversations with her. And you've given us a great overview of the kind of things you're working on. Appreciate that. It's a very interesting talk. It's an interesting topic. And I hope all of you will seek her out over the next few weeks and have an opportunity to talk to her further. Lisa, thank you very much. Thank you. It's good to have you here.